What's up? This is Ali Einhorn, host of the Talk House podcast. Today I'm joined by... Hi, it's Amy Rose Spiegel, Talk House Music's Editor-in-Chief. And we have some very exciting news. We are so stoked to tell you that we've been nominated for a Webby Award. Woo! We've been honored in the podcast and digital audio category for Best Individual Episode. This was a very powerful episode featuring Rose McGowan and Meredith Graves in conversation. Now, you probably know that Rose and Meredith are both really vocal feminists. This conversation is especially interesting because it takes place just before sexual harassment exploded into a wider national conversation. Loyal listeners, in case you missed this, which I know you didn't, you can check it out at iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page. And if you like it, there's actually two components to this Webby Award. In the first, the International Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences selects whom they think should be the winner. But in the second, you do. So if you like the episode, please go to the Webby Award site and vote for us. You can also find the direct voting link at TalkHouse.com. And while you're there, why not check out Meredith and Rose's incredible past contributions? Rock the vote! We want you. Hey, what's up? This is Ellie Einhorn. Welcome back to the TalkHouse podcast. We have an amazing show for you today. The one, the only, William Friedkin in conversation with Guillermo del Toro. Now, we have two very special guests. First off, with me whenever he can be. The Sancho Panza to your Don Quixote, I guess. <laughs> it's me, Nick Dawson. I am still the editor-in-chief of TalkHouse Film, and I'm faithfully present. The other, who you'll know is deputy editor of VanityFair.com and co-host of the podcast, Little Gold Men. Joining us remotely, Katie Rich. Welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time. Now, listeners, as you know from last week's episode, we premiered a little piece of today's talk on Little Gold Men, but there is oh so much more. This blockbuster episode is coming to you in two parts. It could not be confined to one episode. There was just too much. There was just too much. Nick Dawson, tell us how this came together. Well, William Friedkin, legendary director of The French Connection, The Exorcist, Cruising to Live and Die in LA, Bug Killer Joe, etc., 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 has a new movie called The Devil and Father Amorth, which is a documentary about exorcism. He has taken his exorcism theme, IRL. Indeed. And I was like, who should we get to talk with him? Who loves Friedkin and has a strong religious background and is one of the great filmmakers of our generation? And the obvious answer was Guillermo del Toro. And so I started DMing with Guillermo over Twitter and we're like, hey, we should make this happen. Nick DMs with Guillermo del Toro listeners. That's what he does in his spare time. He's a very personable guy. And he loves the talkcast, of course. When it actually looked like it was going to happen, I was like, we should bring on a partner who can amplify this, who is also awesome and who has perfect taste in movies. And I thought, I should give Katie a call. (laughs) And so that's kind of how that happened. I mean, to us, it feels like you guys are living the dream where you get to, you know, track down someone who won an Oscar a month ago and have him in conversation with, uh, you know, someone who he grew up admiring his films, as did everybody. I I mean, we get to talk to a lot of interesting people, but having them in conversation with each other, that's the special sauce that you guys have. Thank you. That is the TalkHouse's recipe. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun. And I have to say, those guys spoke for almost two hours and they had a pretty amazing time. This was a conversation that nobody would cut off. This had to be run in its entirety, coming nearly directly on the heels of Guillermo del Toro's huge Oscar wins, four Oscars for The Shape of Water, including, of course, Best Director and Best Picture. He sat down with William Friedkin to discuss, well, a lot. They start, I mean, how could you not start with the Oscars? Of course, Friedkin won a bunch in the 70s. A ton. Uh, when he became the legend that he is today. And of course, Del Toro has been working out with his uh, his little gold man, <laughs> as it were, pumping those weights uh, in the last month or so. They have a fascinating talk about Oscars and, and awards generally. Yeah, the fact that they wanted to start talking about the Oscars is, a, of course, a dream come true for someone like me who obsesses over them. And this this really frank conversation, and I think surprisingly frank, because people are always afraid to seem ungrateful for their awards or kind of exhausted mm. by the process. But of course, they're totally exhausted by the process. So when you get Guillermo telling William Friedkin, you know, it's like going into the heart of darkness, going to all these screenings and parties. It just feels <laughs> so honest and something that only a fellow best director or winner could really truly understand. 
so true. It's a lot of work. This is a lot of work. You are on the treadmill. It's grueling. It's it's funny. They touch on so much in this conversation. I love that he went back to talking about his roots. He was basically an apprentice to Dick Smith, who was the makeup artist on The Exorcist. And he was the guy who, who sort of gave him the tools to make his first movie, Kronos, back in the late 80s. And also, as you'll hear in the talk, help Del Toro realize his strengths and weaknesses in filmmaking. Directing versus makeup. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that's certainly true. And of course, that leads into this fascinating story about making uh, the exorcist, specifically the, the Pazuzu statue, from like the spontaneous way he included that in, in the scene with Linda Blair to going to Iraq and, and shooting with like the, the Yazidis. It's fascinating stuff and captures this like Friedkin as, as Maverick really, really perfectly. The two also get into one of the real bumps in the road that Del Toro hit in his Oscar campaign in the form of a plagiarism lawsuit. Yeah, it was interesting when that was filed, you saw the president of Fox Searchlight kind of saying it was a classic award season tactic, which seems crazy that people are just filing lawsuits as part of an awards campaign, but it really does happen. And with someone like Guillermo, who's really well-liked in the industry, there's not like a lot of dirt you can dig up about him. That was kind of seen as the method for taking down The Shape of Water, which was a front runner at that point. And it obviously didn't help it, but you know, it, it affects you when someone accuses you of stealing your work like that. It's really interesting in the conversation because when Friedkin brings it up, you can kind of hear uh, this sort of like reserved uh, response that, that Guillermo has, this almost reticence to talk about it. But because it's Friedkin who understands this stuff, who said that like The Exorcist was sued like 50 times by people who thought it was their story. Guillermo talks about his friendship with Jim Cameron. Who, James Cameron to Jim, the rest James of us. James Cameron. He calls him Jim. I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just, just echoing him here. We're all He's close personal friends. Close personal friend of all of ours, just let's be honest. Yeah, who, who, who uh, you know, as he said, like there was so many lawsuits against Avatar. When you're a director who has influences, people want to see you, I guess. Their conversation also gets into... The time when William Friedkin was in charge of the Oscars and stopped saying best picture and made everybody really angry as a result. <laughs> uh, Guillermo's joy at being able to take his shoes off after Pan's Labyrinth lost best foreign language feature. The importance of humility after an Oscar win and of always staying a scrapper. And so much more. Should we roll it? Let's roll the tape. We'll just talk shop. Absolutely. I have a couple of things I want to ask you. Me too. Because okay. uh, these are things that uh, I think rarely, rarely do we get to talk like this. If you're ready, I wanted to start, if I may. Yes. It's great to see you. Same here. Uh, the last time I saw you was just before mm-hmm. the uh, Oscar nominations yes. came out. Even nominations. And uh, I haven't seen you since, and I wonder how or if you feel your life has changed since you won? Well, it's been, it's been very crazy. The, the speed of it has been so fast that uh, I think that uh, me, myself, I, I felt uh, uh, an enormous interior change and the nominations came out. I felt uh, really uh, beautifully uh, embraced. And then the DGA, which is, in my opinion, uh, one of the awards that for directors counts so much. Oh, yeah. Because it's your peers. And what we do, honestly, and we were talking about this before we started recording, the alchemy, which is directing, a lot of people think it's chemistry. And it's not chemistry, it's alchemy. It's transmutation. It's, and only those that, practi- that are practitioners in the art know what it entitles. And so when you get recognized by DGA or the directing Oscar, it's incredibly beautiful. So that, that changes you inside. Then I also think, as a person, uh, going through the season, which starts seven or eight months Mm -hmm. before and now ends almost the week or the day of the Oscars, uh, you go up and down all the time, you know? Were you um, anticipative about it? Were you concerned uh, really about winning? Well, it's funny because you start... Uh, it's almost like uh, it's almost like uh, heart of darkness. <laughs> you start with one mission. You start saying, "Look, you know, uh, whatever happens, happens." And then you get the nominations, and little by little, you are in. You know, you you do you do wake up. Uh, you look at at everything happening. You you become much more 
uh, sort of invested the more time passes. And I, I, I really must tell you, for me, and it may be because of our profession, but the, the thing was directing, the, the directing Oscar. Because is uh, and and the DGA, uh, because uh, those are also nominations and awards that I didn't get uh, with Pan's Labyrinth. I got writer, foreign film, and so forth. And is a recognition of the peers that you get really invested in. I have to tell you, when I won, mm-hmm. I had no expectation of winning, mm-hmm. even after I won the Directors Guild Award. Yes. because sometimes. They, they don't, don't match up yeah. sometimes. Yeah. But the Directors Guild is less about the popularity yes. of the film, how much right. people love the film, yes. than the Oscars are. Yes. You know, the, the Directors Guild is about how well the film is made, yes. and generally the members know. Yes. They know how well it's made. Yeah. Uh, I personally have always had, and I'm, I'm, I'm really thrilled for you, but I personally have always had an antipathy toward awards. Mm -hmm. I believe they're subjective. They are. You know, there is no finite, it's not a track meet. It's not a boxing match. It's not a tennis match. No. Uh, How do you talk about winners and losers? One year, I produced the Academy Awards and I took the word best out of it. And I got a lot of hate mail, but (laughs) uh, it was, they announced not the best directing or the best acting in a feature film. The award was the Academy Award for an actor in a featured role Mm -hmm. or the Academy Award for the director of a feature film or a Mm -hmm. short film Mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. And at the end, I had Warren Beatty explain that we really don't... Yes, he was there then too... (laughs) <laughs> but and he was able to read a card then. But we we don't think about the best Guillermo. Oh, you know, yeah. there are great films. There are films that you love. And very different amongst each other. How do you? What is a better film, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre yeah. or Singing in the Rain? Yes. How do you match them up? It is it is a thing that and also the meritocracy of sports, which is uncontestable. The, the, the goal was in or not. The, the boxer went down mm-hmm. or not. Was, in, was the boxer down for the count? There is not such a thing in the arts in general. Literature, painting, you know, it's, it's impossible. It's not, it's not so cut and dry. And what, what I think is we are so many species. It's like you have a perfect uh, Labrador next to a perfect <laughs> uh, uh, English bulldog. So they are so different, right. and 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 really, why uh, I think that the reason uh, DGA uh, has a special meaning for directors is because it's about uh, the intricacies of how a movie is put together. Is it logistically majestic? Is it well staged? We know that the ballet between the camera and the actor, the delicate uh, balance of the editing, the tone, these things. Uh, are judged by our peers and by peers that are ADs, second ADs. I mean, people production that, managers, production managers, people that are in the field with you. It is it is a different gauge. But I, I agree. I think it's extremely difficult to say. Uh, I mean, even even when even the controversy when people say, "Well, Wings." was the first movie to win, and it, there were other... But, you know, you go back and watch that movie, and the inventiveness with the camera, it is it's staggering. Great. It's great. Well, one year, I think, there was Gone with the Wind, The mm-hmm. Wizard of Oz, yes. and uh, Goodbye, Mr. Chips, yes. and seven others of that caliber. caliber yeah. How, you know, uh, Gone with the Wind is hype. Yes. Uh, you know, it took a lot of money to do it, which they had. I don't think it's a great picture today, but Citizen Kane is. Yes. And that never won Best Picture. It won a screenplay award. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's about it, not cinematography. No, and, and you know, I think that you have to uh, truly... Uh, at the end of the day, I mean, I think that where it gets to be very, 
where you get very engaged is in the maybe. You get really engaged in the maybe because it's, it's like, it's exactly as when you're in high school and you're going to ask a girl out, you know, the second best answer is no. <laughs> you know, you got an answer. Yeah. But I think as the, as the pulse accelerates in the award season, you go, is it going to be a yes? Is it going to be a no? And that's when you get caught. Yeah. Once you get it, I remember when Pan's Labyrinth didn't win Best Foreign Film, uh, I felt a relief. I felt a huge relief. And I said, okay, first of all, I can take off my shoes, which are super tight. And second of all, I got, you know, I, 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 had, I had a great feeling. Not winning did not change the movie. It was exactly the same movie that it was when I went into the ceremony. And that you have to take it exactly the same way if you win. You go, the movie doesn't change. It's going to find its staying power with an audience, with being remembered. And, and it doesn't change. I mean, it's just that the last six weeks, four weeks, get to be such a pace. You know, you are going from one uh, showing to another. You're going from one festival to another, from one awards show to another, that it really accelerates, you know? Then I think the problem becomes, can you keep your focus yes. on what your internal mission as a director is? And your craft, yes. And not just take everything that comes along, which I'm sure you're being offered now, yeah, for money, by people who don't know what it is that your real focus uh, yes. consists of. Yeah. And th that's when you need to focus even more yeah. because the tendency is to want to have you do the same thing again. That happened, that happened to me to a degree actually after Pan and I learned a lesson, you know. It happened to me after Pan and I, I didn't forget it. And that's why I very declared, very, very, very purposely, I, I said I'm going to take... I'm not going to direct anything until 2019. I'm going to take a sort of a sabbatical, and that is not entirely true. The three or four projects that could be have been in the works for a year now. But I, I said I don't want to jump into anything. I don't want to be busy doing something. I want to land. I want to land as a person, you know. Whatever happens, I didn't know if we were going to win or not. I declared I'm not directing anything until 2019. Because that's when I think that success is more disorienting than failure, by far, oh, yeah. by far. You get drunk and you get lost. And that people, we are such a culture of success. As a, the West is such a culture of success, is achiever, getter, and, and you really lose yourself in that. I think so. I, I feel that I kind of lost myself. In success. Oh, absolutely. Mm. And before, it never occurred to me. Yes. I never had in my wildest dreams that I could make a film, you know, that would be mentioned in the same class as some of the greats. And when you win this award, it, it goes up there. Yeah. Uh, but then they all come back to posterity I think that there is some something in a filmmaker, and that's what we were talking about, success. Something in a filmmaker has to remain, you have to remain a scrapper. You know, you have to remain. And success palliates that spirit. I mean, kind of eases you into success, tells you you're a good boy, you know, in a way. And if you give in to that impulse, you get disoriented because you're oh, yeah. being patted in the, patted in the back. And if you believe that pat in the back, I think there's a difference. For example, I think the artist stays outside of the banquet looking in and he has a certain degree of rage against the people that are in the, in the candlelit banquet enjoying the, the nice dinner with the nice cutlery and success tells you, come in, have a piece of chicken, <laughs> have a glass of wine and you shouldn't. If you go in, if you fully go in into the banquet, you lose a little of that scrapper spirit, whatever it is. That doesn't mean you don't have to do, you can do huge movies, you can do small movies, but at the end of the day, that spirit shouldn't give in. We had uh, early, very early in our careers, mm -hmm. 
we had a mutual kind of friend and mentor. Yes. Which uh, I've known about for a long time, and then I forgot about it. Yes. And then when we had dinner not long ago... We remembered. I remembered a conversation I had in the 80s with Dick Smith. Yes. Was it the 80s? Yeah. Uh, in which he told me he was mentoring some people, and among them was this young Mexican director <laughs> who he thought was going to be... A, a, a very good filmmaker, but he wasn't sure he was going to be a great makeup artist. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't. <laughs> but you studied makeup with, with Dick him. Smith, who did the makeup for The Exorcist. Yeah. 1987. Mm -hmm. I'm, I wrote to Dick Smith. I sent him my samples. I stated my fact. I said, look, I'm, I want to do a movie called Kronos. Nobody in Mexico does the effects. So I'm going to make a company, learn to do the effects, do the effects for a few years, then do Kronos, then I'll close the company. And he wrote me back, and I have the letter. And he said, you, you know, you are not uh, a really good makeup artist. He said, you, you're a good draftman, you're an okay sculptor. But he said, but I'm going to admit you into the course because I believe this will allow you to make your movie. Well, what a great guy. Geez. And he was like that with everyone. I mean... Dick Smith is a guy that uh, came to win the Academy Award through your, the work with you, with Scorsese, with Coppola, with so many. He, made, he transformed the art of makeup effects. Totally. He elevated it. And he was a guy that when I went to see him in Larchmont, New York, to his study, he, he picked me up in his car at the train station, this Mexican kid. He took me home. He showed me all the molds for The Exorcist. He gave me a piece of Amadeo's foam. He took me to lunch. He returned me to the train. And he waited with me until the train arrived. And, and, and he was like that with everyone. I know that. Yeah. They weren't giving an Academy Award for makeup. No. At the time of The Exorcist, which is one of the most important features of so many films. Yes. Makeup, Dick used to do it very beautifully with the usual lift, the silk mm -hmm. lifts, and, and, and very key prosthetic pieces. It's an art. I think that de-aging should be, I think everything should be done using all technology. You know, mm -hmm. uh, when, you, when, you, when you did uh, The Exorcist, everything was in play, sound effects, wire effects, mechanical effects, makeup effects. There was not a single thing. It was a, no a, computer. No, no computer, but everything was a mixture of things. And it was beautiful. And some of the stuff you did was purely, and this is again, it's a, it's a flair that I adore. Some of it was pure theatricality. The backlit silhouette with the smoke where you evoke Pazuzu, you know, in the room, you know, is a backlit image that is out of an opera, you know? We, I, that's not in the script. Mm -hmm. I improvised that because one day uh, when we were filming uh, in the little girl's bedroom, they first framed that statue. It was 15 feet high with about an eight-foot wing spread, and it was, uh, they, they finished it in the shop in New York, and they brought it upstairs to the set for me to see. And my first image of it was really powerful. And I said, Let, let's put that in a shot. Really? And I put it back there. I asked Owen Roisman, the director of photography, to backlight it. And we faded a light up on it and down on it so it like disappeared into the smoke in the room. And I had Linda Blair just affect a pose in front of it. I thought it was way over the top, would never make the final cut. But I had to do it. I had this image, which is not in the script at all, of her and Pazuzu in yeah. the same frame. Yeah. And uh, it was because I was so stunned at seeing it. It was a perfect reproduction of the... Uh, Assyrian sculpture mm -hmm. of Pazuzu, which is in the British Museum, mm -hmm. the original. It's of a different scale, the original, right? The original is very 
small. It was a small idol, you know, but exactly like that. And there have been many drawings of it. I don't know if there were ever any as large as the one we manufactured. (laughs) But somewhat is monolithic in its its, uh, presence. Yeah, it, it was very powerful. And when we took it to Mosul, Iraq to film it, there were hundreds and hundreds of people who lined up to see it. You know, they, never they couldn't seen believe it. it. <laughs> and then they, I was invited by the head of uh, the Yazidi, who were the devil worshippers of the Muslim sect. I was invited to meet the head of the Yazidi because he heard that there was this crazy American guy who erected a statue to Pazuzu out in the desert and was throwing raw meat at it to try and attract <laughs> vultures. And he got the impression somehow, from what he was told, that I was a like-minded person. <laughs> so they invited me to see him. My hosts were the Ba'athist government of Iraq, uh, and uh, it was before Saddam, just before Saddam. But they didn't want me to go. This was Kurdish territory, and you had to have different you had to show papers to the Kurds and then to the Arabs. Every mile or two, the territory was held by one or the other. And it was difficult terrain and very dangerous. And I went there to the home of the Yazidi, which consisted of a space in the forest out there of stone conical huts in the shape of a witch's camp. Yeah. And I was warned never to swat a fly. No. Because they believed that the devil or Shatam mm-hmm. was in, lived in the spirit of flies. Lord of the flies. Right. So he was sitting there, the head of the order. He looked like the Ayatollah Khomeini. He was sitting cross-legged on the ground outside of his conical stone hut, which had a metallic serpent in it. Mm-hmm. All the huts had a metallic serpent outside. And he was surrounded by flies. I mean, everywhere. Imagine the largest swarm of flies that you could imagine all around his face, his hands, his body. And he would occasionally just brush them away delicately. And I was... Uh, clothed from head to toe everywhere and they were getting on my face and I had to do the same thing. I could not swat one uh, or I was told it would be curtains for me. It would be like killing, destroying one of their idols. What was his, what was his, I mean, the way he viewed uh, Satan, you know, would would be, it it was very different, was it, from the Western notion of it? Yes, but a lot of very small um, rules. If you were present at the birth of a UCD child, Mm -hmm. he would be responsible for your life. For for the rest. For the rest of your life. Uh, Yazidis did not make love with their pants fully off. They had one leg on. Really? There, the language of the, the Arabic language is, has a very uh, CH sound. <sighs> like uh, the phrase khosh kaka mm-hmm. means hello, my friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Yazidi dialect, they don't use the CH sound. It's the SH sound, like shatam mm-hmm. for Satan. There are many other kind of obscure rules, but also you never walk uh, in front of a Yazidi because he is liable to get a message from his demon to kill you. Mm-hmm. And he will, no matter what. Um, They had sacrificial temples in each one of the conical stone huts for animals and people. Uh, Otherwise, they were a very peaceful people, rather remote. Um, He was disappointed when he heard I was not a like-minded person, but making a movie. And he wasn't entirely sure what 
that was. It did, had to be, did he understand your profession? No. no. But, but I was doing something that wasn't directly uh, in observation of uh, the demon. But he was very respectful and he, he told me a lot about the rules. And um, I never had any real problems there except getting in and getting out, which was always difficult. When I was in Iraq shooting the opening, they were at war with Kuwait, with Iran, and within the country with the Kurds. At the same time. At the, and Syria. And I went in with no diplomatic relations whatsoever. The State Department would not authorize my going there. I had to take a British crew. America had no relations with Iraq then at all, not even a desk at the UN. Nothing. Nothing. Uh, but I went to Jack Valenti, who was the head of um, the Motion Picture Association of America mm -hmm. and a friend. I said, Jack, is there a way I can reach somebody from Iraq? He said, yeah, I'll give you the name of the guy who's the Iraqi mission to the UN. But, but he was your only contact going in, and, yeah. and the studio still went the with The studio him. said no. Yeah. Absolutely not. They, would, they couldn't get insurance on me. Uh, I, only, I took Dick Smith, yes. Rick Baker, mm -hmm. and Max Von Sydow. And that's it? Yeah. And um, Owen didn't go with you? No, I couldn't take any more Americans. I took the great British cinematographer and his crew, Billy Williams, mm -hmm. who shot Women in Love, among many other fine films. And uh, he was also a scrapper. Yeah, but, but they had, Britain had some relationship with Iraq, and so they didn't mind uh, British people, but few Americans. They wanted the conditions they finally put on it after months of consideration were a very limited American crew. We, meaning Dick Smith, had to teach them how to do makeup blood. Uh -huh. I don't know what that was about. And they wanted a 35 millimeter print of the French Connection, <laughs> which I got for it. That's it. That's it. And then I had to hire Iraqis on the crew. And Dick Smith trained Iraqis to and, work and with him. And he trained the blood. And he, well, the blood, you know, it's funny. The, the, the blood, I still remember his uh, recipe. It was because there was Technicolor blood, mm -hmm. which was the Hammer Films blood. Red, red. It was red. It was like Sherwin-Williams. Yeah. Sherwin-Williams Carmine yeah. color, yeah. And there was, uh, the formulation Dick Smith did was carrot syrup. He would use photo flood, photo flood or... Mm -hmm. Uh, or um, flour to to give it a, a texture. white texture, and he would use um, he would mix red with green, blue, mm -hmm. and some yellow. And depending, he would he would be very specific. He said, "Is if it's arterial blood, you know, it's one color, and if it's not, you know, if it's pre-filtering, is darker, and after filtering, is more." He he would go into these details, and and it was pretty peculiar. It it really reads. It, it was one of the first realistic bloods on oh, film. Oh, yes. They haven't improved on it. No, they, no, no one has. But I, I wanted to go back to the Pazuzu statue for a second because what I think is brilliant, and this is in all your career, uh, first of all, is the juxtaposition, I think, is the essence of art in many ways. It can be the leaves saying, let's put a lobster on top of a phone. Or it can be, but it's, it's being observant and saying this should go with that instinctively. You saw the statue, they were presenting it to you because you were going to shoot it later then. Yeah, we, we sent it to Baghdad. And then you said, no, 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 <laughs> put it in the bedroom. Yeah. That, what you have that is beautiful in all your career is you have an instinct that is, it, some people would say documentarian because you, but no, you have the, you observe and you catch things on the go. Everyone in any of your movies, and it can be to live and die in L.A., or it can be a sorcerer, or it can be, and you catch it in the air, and you say, wait, 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 what's happening over here? And that, uh, that instinct is pretty unique uh, in you, you know? Well, thank you. Um, the, the thing was, certain things present themselves to you. But if you're not watching. Yeah, but it's, it's a movable feast. Yeah. And you have to be curious enough to partake of it. 
my films are mostly thought of as completely realistic. But realism is not what I admire the most. What I have not been able to do is a film like several that you've made mm. that operate in another space mm. and come from the imagination, not dissimilar from Fellini, for example, whose mm. films I admire so much that are not about what the realistic world. They seem to be set in a real world, but the whole tone and the conscience the of the visual tone also, yeah. Yes, is in the imagination and then transformed into the imagination of the viewer. Yes. And I take as the, the best example of that the MGM musicals. Yes. Which are not in the real world. We agree on that 100%. They, they start, they sing. Yeah. And they dance. And there's a tonal, there's a visual tone that needs to go with that. And a lot of people don't acknowledge that. When you say Fellini, I always go and say to people, you know, one of his movies that nobody likes or not, nobody mentions as the top is Casanova. What he does that is beautiful is that scene in the sea that is on with, with garbage bags, yeah. with polyurethane bags moving with the wind, and they are at sea. You know, and I think the, the, the synthetic in every sense of the word, the th synthetic will that you have when you are going to reinterpret the world is very important in the musicals because in my mind, like you say with Intolerance or Einstein, you know, the silent film achieved cinematic perfection. Then came the talkies, you know, and I think the, the main reason, of course there's dialogue and all that and the reproduction of reality, but the most beautiful act of sound cinema to me, is the musical. That's when you go, oh, yeah. oh, that's why they invented sound. Exactly. And tonally, visually, you need to go like Fox. The, the musicals at Fox were super vivid color, lush. And, you know, each studio had a signature, but all of them are visual elevated. You need to elevate the visuals for the musical to, for somebody to suddenly get up and start singing. Well, and the masters of that were Vincent Minnelli and exactly. Stanley Donnan. Exactly. And uh, uh, I know Minnelli started directing stage shows. And, a, and he was a window dresser. A window dresser yes. before that. And I so admire what they do. And now what you do has taken it to the next dimension. They don't make musicals anymore, although... The Shape of Water has the flavor of a musical in I, many I, ways. I tried. I, I studied yeah. Minnelli. I studied Donnan. I mean, Minnelli uh, truly, even even in uh, there are so many moments of him that are sustained by color, by movement, by light, and and a heightened sense of melodrama, which is beautiful. The most romantic scene I've ever seen is Dancing in the Dark. Yeah. In uh, the bandwagon, where Sid Charisse and Fred Astaire just go into this obvious set depicting Central Park, and they're expressing their feelings for each other through dance, not even song. Yes. They just dance, and it, it just hits me every time I see it. I agree. I agree with you. It's, it is one of the most romantic I've ever seen. That's why, you know, there, there are movies that go to that synthetic reality. Like, I think of Marnie. Hitchcock mm -hmm. is, that, Marnie is almost his musical visually. Yes. He goes and says, well, this is a set. Of course it's a set. And of course her bag, uh, her bags are and the color yellow. And the, you know, he just goes into an abs almost an abstract type of filmmaking. Vertigo has that level of oh, yeah. depuration. But uh, the, the thing that the musical does is it, it tells you this is what the world could be. It's not, but this right. is what the world emotionally could be. And I, use, I study that, and I, I think that uh, a, lot of, a lot of that beauty, uh, and you say you, you haven't done it, but I, I agree and I don't because the, the tonal shift, you have shot two of perhaps the two greatest car chases in the history of cinema, and they are very different amongst them. You know, the, you have the... The tense, incredibly realistic uh, French connection, and then you have the almost 
absurdly musical, colorful, beautiful chase and to live and die in LA, which is choreography. It's, it's, yes, it is. It's it, choreography. Completely choreographed. Uh, but they're presented as extremely realistic. Mm -hmm. Everything that we did in those chase scenes is something that you could do. They were not cars <laughs> jumping over cars. No. They were not flipping in midair. Uh, one is a car chasing a train. Mm -hmm. And I did that. Hey, Mark, can I have a coffee? Yeah. You want one? Oh, yeah. Okay. How do you like it? Uh, I'm on milk and three stevias. Okay. <laughs> so I wanted it all to be possible, and it was possible. But as I said in starting this uh, phase of our conversation, I most admire the imaginative. Yes. The, the, something that is not necessarily rooted in reality, mm. which is why I think those films last longer, and I think The Shape of Water will last for a very long time. It will be around because it definitely takes you into an idealized world, mm. you know? Yes, cinema. There's no monster. Cinema. Yes, yeah. it, is, it is cinema. And the thing is, I, I wanted to make a movie set in the territory of film, but not being postmodern. I didn't want to be reflective. I, want, I wanted to be immersed, immersively in love with movies. I didn't want to say, this is my postmodern take on deconstruction. There was no deconstruction in shape. What it is, and it's very hard to explain because anecdote to me or plot is the least interesting part of a movie in a cinematic way. What you did with Pazuzu in the middle of the bedroom is what is interesting to me of cinema. Something that can only exist in movies. You cannot do that in literature because you actually downgrade it. You know, you do it on film and you do it with light and with a sound design and with a camera and an angle and a lens and it's, it lives there. And I wanted that to exist in shape beyond the anecdote. The anecdote is very simple, you know? It, the plots are, uh, you have seen them, you know? They are uh, a staple, you know? But how you combine them, the fact that they shouldn't go together, there shouldn't be a mm -hmm. musical number and a melodrama scene in a creature movie. There shouldn't, and that's your, that juxtaposition. <laughs> which we were discussing earlier, that's what makes it interesting. The fact that you can have a real comedy moment or a sitting dancing moment in a sofa alongside uh, a universal monster creature movie and that you can see it where the heroes are now the villains and the monster is now the hero. Those were the things that are interesting to me. When you reverse all those polarities, that's what is interesting. I mean, I think that's what movies can do. It, they say, oh, a character, you will never forgive a character for doing X. That's not true. You'll forgive any character doing anything because movies are uh, rely on empathy, you know? So much is inherent mm -hmm. in the quality of the actor. Yes. You could watch James Cagney do anything. Do the worst possible killings mm -hmm. in a movie mm -hmm. and still like him and want to watch him. Yes. That's the key, I think, to film acting. Yes. Someone who needs to be watched no matter what they're doing. Yes. Uh, and there is a need, you know, this is hard to explain, and either the actor has it or the actor doesn't have it. It can't be trained. It cannot be trained. Right. And you have amazing actors. And, and the way I define it is you care for them or you don't care for them. And I think it comes from the actor needing you. And I don't know how to explain it otherwise. You, you care for them. You, you want them to fare well. Yes. You know? And it doesn't matter what they do. That's exactly it. Bogart was yes. like that. Bogart is one of the most degraded heroes in a movie in The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Yeah. He's greedy. He's a killer. Uh, he's totally self-involved. One would argue Desperate Hours, he's the, yes. he's the main character. Of course, know? but you care about watching him. Yeah. 
And so that's why casting becomes so important in a film. Is is really same part, different actor, doesn't work. Completely different. An interesting thing happened to you mm-hmm. toward the announcement of the Oscars. Yeah, yeah. Some guy sued mm-hmm. and claimed that the story was based on a play that he wrote. That his it, father wrote. His, that father. his father wrote. Yes. That seems to me to be one about- of the most obscure. Uh, plays that I've ever seen in print. And, of course, everything is in the air, Mm -hmm. but this seemed to me to be timed for some peculiar reason Mm. to hurt the prospects Mm. of The Shape of Water, Mm. and that only, Mm -hmm. Uh, and maybe to gain some notoriety, Mm -hmm. because... It happened to Spielberg. There was a campaign against yeah. uh, Saving Private Ryan. And, and, and E.T. got sued too, several times. Avatar. Blah, blah. Uh, the Exorcist was sued about 50 times yeah. by people who said this was their story. Yeah, it happened. It happened. I mean, I'm very close with Jim and Avatar. And uh, he's, he's almost, it happens Every yeah. every few months. It's an industry. It's an industry. But how did you feel? Because this, we, you know, Sherry and I mm-hmm. are enormous fans of this film. And we wanted it to achieve what yes, it did. Of course. And then you see something like this and yes. you say, oh my God, is anyone going to be affected by this? Because to a great extent, some people are. Uh, when we talk we, about our industry... In so many ways, uh, you depict our industry in so many ways that are negative. Uh, you know, you have movies about it and so forth, but there is a thing about this industry. Uh, I think the industry knows the timing, knows a trajectory, and, and those are the things you rest upon. Were you, you say, concerned about it? I, I was, uh, is when you think and hope and you say, well, I've been at it for 25 years, you know. Uh, I've been I've been incredibly open about my influences for 25 years. Oh, absolutely. So you know that's when you say, uh, let's hope that that speaks loudly on a process that is going to take uh, what legal processes take, which is a long time. And uh, and there's uh, no real defense. There, well, there you is. Could say, I never saw this. Yeah. I never heard of which it. Which is true. Of course, but you know it's hard to prove a negative. It, it is, and then but then you you abandon yourself to 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 what you've done, mm-hmm. to what you have behind you, to what you've uh, done again and again. You know, when when you make a movie like Pacific Rim, you acknowledge Pat Labor, you acknowledge Tetsujin, you acknowledge Mazinger, you acknowledge Gonagai. You say, uh, uh, you know, Tsuburaya, uh, Ishiro Honda, Godzilla. You, you, you know, you've done it for so long. You're not yeah. stealing from that. You're not that. secretive. There is inspiration. And what you say is this. You say, look, uh, it, first of all, it's a no. Second, read the play, watch the movie. And, you know, that's your own exercise, you know. Mm-hmm. That's all you can say. The rest... Uh, you know, opinion and law are two different things. And I think this falls into one of the courts, which is law. And, um, you know, the answer will come from out of the process. You know, as, as an individual, you just say, not an influence. Of course not. Not an influence. But it, and, and had it been an influence, it would have been acknowledged. I'm sure you would have yeah. said... It had yeah. some effect on me, of course, if yeah. you had even known about it. But mm-hmm. th- th- that's the dark side of uh, the Academy Awards, <laughs> you know. And there is a dark side. If there is a dark side and there is a light side, I must say wholeheartedly, when you get to the end and you land on the, on the bright side, it makes anything that happens over those seven months worth it. Do you think... You're a better filmmaker today because of the success of Shape of Water. Would you have felt if it had not had the success it had mm. that it was a failure? You know, the, I have lived through some of my movies falling 
through the cracks of either marketing or circumstance that I still think are some of my best movies. That includes Devil's Backbone, which I absolutely adore. So you, you, you believe, or you have to believe, that you have the steel underneath it all to not believe, not to be guided by the outposts of success, you know? I think that what I know is that the way we made shape, the, how hard it was, how difficult it was, how there was a will and a decision to say, we're going to make this movie impossibly for 19.3 million. We willed it into the world with a, for a fourth of what it should have costed. <laughs> that makes you a more resourceful filmmaker. And at an ethical, spiritual level, to stick with a project for reasons that were as pure. Because obviously on Monday, everybody talks about Friday's game. But when you're playing it, it the uncertainty is massive. Mm -hmm. No one knew. You know, no one knew. No one knew. And as you say, with success, you attract the opposite forces now and then. You know, with, with huge success come a, a swing of the pendulum, necessarily. It can be a backlash, it can be critical, it can be opinion, it can be a, uh, external matters, but it always comes. Such a huge momentum always attracts an opposite reaction. And you say, that's the way the world is. What an amazing talk. That's it for part one of Friedkin and Del Toro in conversation here on the TalkHouse podcast. But day after tomorrow, that's this Thursday, April 19th, we are dropping part two. Nick Dawson, what do they have in store for us? It's the big question. Life, death, evil, religion, emotion, reason, logic, the apocalypse. It's incredible. They get really deep. They talk about a lot and in a fascinating way about the devil and Father A. Morth. Some amazing stories from the filming of that documentary. Yeah, it's a blockbuster. What can I say? Listeners, make sure to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is recorded by Gideon Brower. Thank you so much, Gideon, for braving biblical rainstorms to make it to Casa del Friedkin to record this incredible conversation. And our producer, as always, is Mark Yoshizumi. Thanks, Mark. Till Thursday. See you then.